Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks my for listening. My next guest is Todd Stanley. He is an NBCT teacher and author of many teacher education books, including project-based learning for gifted students, promoting rigor through higher level questioning, and a teacher's toolbox for gifted education. He served as a classroom teacher for 18 years before becoming the gifted services coordinator for Pinkerton Schools. He serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati as well. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to crawl out. Well, it's interesting. I have given this great thought uh, since we've had our initial conversation. And there are various um, uh, things in the timeline of me as an educator in the trenches. So, for example, yeah. one I came up with is that when I was a student, I definitely was in the trenches when I, uh, I had a teacher. I had several teachers, actually that uh, were not very engaging teachers. They were, they just talked at you, they were whatever. And that was very formative um, for myself when I became a teacher. Sometimes I think it's almost as good to see what not to do, yeah. what you don't want to be, than, than seeing great examples. I had great teachers as well. And so I, I learned from what they did the great. I had one, I mean, to give you an example, I had a geometry teacher who was just, he had an overhead projector. He would lecture to us every day. He sounded like the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. Very, very monotone. Uh, didn't didn't learn a lick of geometry, even though, ge I mean, I'm not a big math fan, but geometry is definitely in my wheelhouse, uh, but didn't learn much. And then um, and then two years later, I, here I am in trigonometry class, which is supposed to be the most difficult math class there is. And I'll never forget Mr. Goodrich. He looked like a redheaded Santa Claus. He uh -huh. just was... He also talked at you, but he was so passionate about what he was teaching that you couldn't help but care. And he would sit down and talk with you individually and whatever. But like his passion for teaching just was like, that's what I want to be. That's I, if I'm in the classroom, if I ever get in a classroom, because I wasn't sure at that point, but if I ever get in a classroom, that's what I want to be like. So um, and so and then as, as a teacher, you know, I've had lots of out of the trenches um stories one that was very formative for me or two that were very formative for me was at a student who uh, you know I was doing project-based learning here or there I was a traditional teacher the first five years I taught not much and other than having students read the chapter answer the questions and then do whatever that they were going to take a test or whatever and when it came to uh I, I would I would put a project in here here or there, I would say, wouldn't it be interesting if we did this? Okay. I like to entertain myself. So I would be like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to try this? And so we would do those things. And then after five years of teaching, I finally had students old enough. I was a seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher. I finally had students old enough that could come back and say, you know, and they would come back and visit. And they, they never once said to me, Mr. Stanley, I really love that worksheet we did in your class. Or Mr. Stanley, I, I really love that <laughs> textbook we read. Or I really love the lecture. He, they never, they always said to a T, we love the projects. Yeah. And so for me, that was a huge epiphany because I was like, wait a second, if that's what students are remembering, then that's what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And so because of these students, you know, these students uh, coming and giving me this verbal feedback, oh, I, I didn't collect it and make it quantitative, whatever. It was just like verbal anecdotal. But for me, yeah. it was very, very informative. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, so by the end of my, uh, in the classroom career, I was doing project-based learning all the time, 100%. You know, almost everything I was doing was project-based learning. And then I had students that would go on and come back and say how helpful it was because then they knew how to learn now rather than just being told information. They themselves learned how to learn and they could do whatever they wanted to. So um, those are kind of my, uh, I mean, I, li I like to keep, I like to keep my in the trenches, out of the trenches stories positive. Um and so I, I do like to uh, I think of those formative experiences. Another another formative experience for me was I had a student, um, and this was this really helped me with gifted students because that's the primarily the the uh, population that I work with. And I had this student Matt. I never forget Matt. My favorite. You know, you're not supposed to have favorite students. He was my yeah. favorite of all time. So Matt was the kind. I remember he came into class and he had on a like a toboggan like winter cap and it said Kiss like the okay. the group the rock group. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. 
this was in 1990 so or sorry in 2000 so like yeah shouldn't care about kiss so I was yeah, like, this, yeah. this could be trouble and so um he was the kind of kid that always raised his hand and asked questions and he would say mr stanley what about this mr stanley have you thought about this whatever and he'd ask these questions mm -hmm. and for me as an inquisitive person for me i was like oh that's really interesting i don't know let's talk about that or let's yeah. let's do this but then i had a conversation with a fellow teacher of mine she was his language arts teacher and she her perspective was matt is constantly trying to make me look bad and I'm like, what do you mean by that? Because he's always asking questions. And I'm like, but he's just <laughs> he's just inquisitive. Yeah. He just wants to know more about it. So so for me, that was very informative because I was like, when kids ask questions, it's not a result of them trying to make you look stupid or trying yeah. to challenge you. It's it's their curiosity. And we should yeah. be we should be taking that curiosity and running with it rather than quashing it and saying, don't quit <laughs> asking so many questions. I mean, elementary, I taught elementary third and fourth graders, they have a billion questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't stop class class to answer them all, but definitely you can address them or have opportunities for them to ask those questions in another form. So I had a parking lot where kids could write on a post-it note their questions and put it on this parking lot. And then I'd go look at them and we address them later. I type individual conversations with kids. But that was really important for me because then I realized, ah, there some people see these, the, these acts as acts of discipline problems. These are not acts of discipline problem. These are acts of curiosity. We should be working with that rather than against that. So, um, so that was another really formative out of the trenches story for me. So, yeah, I mean, definitely that's inquiry based and like really, you know, the kids that uh, want that uh, knowledge, they ask the questions. And, you know, sometimes it is like often they ask questions because they didn't hear the answer you just gave, but. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the frustrating ones, don't get me wrong. I, I just said that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about uh, your latest book, which is how the hell do we motivate these kids? So um, in terms of just the general ed teacher, um, you know, especially now when we have a lot of kids who had online school a few years ago and they're still trying to play their games on their computer whenever they're working on the computer and distracted and, you know, it's hard. Um, you know, that seat time, right? Because we know, like, they only have a certain amount of uh, reserve right, to stay and focused. So um, we've seen, uh, you have a breakout session, you have a sign for pictures of disengaged kids on the phones and the teachers up there. And, you know, they're not really paying attention to the teacher. That's pretty common across mm -hmm. our classrooms. So I'll tell you a little bit about um, what we can do. Sure. So from, from my perspective, it doesn't matter, gifted, special ed, yeah. I had, I've taught them all, regular ed, whatever. And motivation comes down to the, in my opinion, it comes down to the same thing, which is that like, do kids care about what they're learning about? Yeah. So if kids care about what they're learning about, they're going to be way more engaged. And it also, do they care about how you're teaching it? So not just what you're teaching, but how you're teaching it. Um, I often struggle because I feel like I've seen this with my own daughters. I have two daughters, one who is now a, a sophomore in high school and one is a junior in college. And in their order, when they got into high school, junior high, whatever, I noticed that school was happening to them a lot more than it was happening with them. Yeah. So when they, when they were younger and they were in elementary school, they loved to go to school because when they went, school was not being done to them. They were, they were part of the process. They were experimenting. They were trying things. They were doing things that they weren't sitting in rows and they weren't being talked at. Um, and, ele and elementary schools you walk into, and it seems like chaos uh, sometimes when you walk into a classroom, but that chaos is a beautiful thing because that's where the best, that's where the learning takes place. And yet I walk into our high school classrooms, uh, you know, a lot, and I see kids sitting at desks and I see them being talked at. And they're very passive in their learning. Um, kids, all kids love to learn. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. They just might not want to learn what you're teaching them because of the way that you're teaching them it. Yeah. So as teachers, I think the number one thing that we can do to motivate students is try to make the classroom more engaging. And by engaging, I do not mean, mean like being real super excited or things like that, or, you know, like having, you know, cool videos to watch. What I mean is like having the students engage in the learning, that they are the ones doing the learning that you, I mean, you and I have already graduated from school. We don't, we've already proven ourselves. We can do that. So we don't need to be pra passing the seventh grade every time I'm teaching. 
I just need to let students who are in seventh grade try to figure this out, this stuff out for themselves and provide a structure for them. And so you talked about inquiry learning. Uh, I use project-based learning a lot. I used uh, some case-based learning and I use some um, uh, problem-based learning as well. But it was always the same thing where there's this problem and I'm going to let the students kind of tackle it. And I'm going to give them the opportunity to figure out what their um, uh, the content might be maybe what the process is going to be and maybe what the product is going to be. Um, and so give and give them choices in that. And then all of a sudden students feel like, oh, the school thing, I'm actually getting a say in what's going on at school. I'm not being told what to do all the time. Um, and, and I think sometimes it's easier to yeah. just put them in rows and just talk at them. Uh, it's easier. It's easier to teach that way. Although I find it exhausting anymore. Um, and, uh, but, you know, and, it, and it's easier to keep discipline. Like I, I one time um, I suggested to a science teacher, you should try some, I mean, science lines up to project-based learning yeah. beautifully. And I'm like, you should try some project-based learning as no, if I do that, they'll, they'll light the place on fire. And I'm like, really? Like, I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think that that's your perception. If you take your eye off them for a second, yeah. I have found in my experience that when you give kids more control, they seize the opportunity. And then, and then they're engaged and then the discipline doesn't happen. The discipline issues doesn't happen because yeah. they're engaged in the learning. I mean, when you look at most discipline issues, at least in my experience, so most of the discipline where the kids were not engaged with what we were doing, they weren't interested in it or they weren't interested in how it was being taught or, and so because they weren't interested, they decided to cause problems because they're yeah. bored. So I, I had a student, Jacob, uh, I'll never forget Jacob, Jacob, when, um, Jacob was coming to us. They warned, I had him in seventh grade. And they said, in middle school, just want to let you know, Jacob drops F-bombs all the time. Mm -hmm. He'll get up and he'll, he'll drop F-bombs. He'll walk out of the classroom. He's like a terrible kid, blah, 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 this and that. Mm -hmm. and, this. and so then I got Jacob in my class and we just did project-based learning. And he's, and I never had, in two years I had Jacob, I never had a problem with him ever because he was really engaged. Yeah, uh, he was, you know, he was into the learning that we were doing and the type of learning that we were doing. So as a result, you know, that kind of cut off his discipline issues of the past because he was now engaged in the learning. And so, I, again, I, I think, you know, when you're when you're looking at motivating students, you got to engage them. But you you also as the teacher, going back to my good Mr. Goodrich story, you have to show them that you care about what they're learning. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's so important. Like there are things look, there are things as teachers that we have to teach that are, we don't like, okay. There are like, I have to, you know, as a history teacher, I had to teach about, you know, like ancient India, not the most exciting thing in the world. Okay. But I had to, I didn't have to act excited about it, but I had to say like, this is why this is important. This is, I think we don't explain the why enough to students. Yeah. Yeah. This is it's why true. we're learning this. So, cause, because when you, you're a kid and you're like, why should I care about this? It happened 5,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Excellent question. Why should you care about it? And, and the reason why is, you know, you, you come up with your whys and you make sure that you communicate that to students. But I, I have heard teachers numerous times say, because you need to know this or because you need to know it for next year or because you need to know it for the test. Terrible reasons for people to have to learn something. I mean, because yeah. they have to. Um, and so we don't want a have to. We want a want to in the classroom. And the more opportunities you give kids to make choices, the more you engage them and make them part of the process. In my experience, the more motivated that they seem to be. It's not perfect. It doesn't work for everyone. But I will say that um, I, it's worked for a majority of students that I worked with in my in my 26-year career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, really diving deeper into some of those uh, learning types like uh, project-based, you mentioned, inquiry-based, uh, case-based. You know, you've written or co-written some of all of those. So people mm -hmm. can refer to your website and get more information uh, I know a lot of the time that is something um, either a team, a PLC team does school wide or, uh, you know, just a grade level team. But, uh, you know, people can do that in their own classrooms. And, you know, like you said, you started out kind of dabbling. Um, you did it here and there. It's kind of mm -hmm. how I've done it when I taught. Um, but it really is, you know, it's, it's the way to go when you want to have kids get excited about the content. Because like you said, it's, you know, ancient Egypt, ancient India may not be engaging really as a content but find something for mm -hmm. some way for them to present their knowledge uh that they can really take off and you know show how what they've learned so mm -hmm. um we'll talk a little bit now about the gifted conversation mm -hmm. 
So I have uh, two uh, children who've uh, been put on uh, advanced learning plans this year. And, uh, you know, as we call it ALPs in Colorado. Uh, you know, it's called different things in different states. But uh, one of my kids is twice exceptional. So on an IEP as well for ADHD. So um, as a, a parent of a twice exceptional kid, uh, but also keeping in mind uh, students of color who are under-identified, um, how can we better serve the twice exceptional students? A- excellent question. And, and it's interesting because as I'm sure you have as well, you've seen things come and go and change and be made aware of in education as the longer that you're in it. And so when I first started out as a, as a teacher and I was teaching gifted students, gifted special ed student couldn't be gifted. I mean, there, yeah. there was this, it was like, no, they're special ed. They need to be at that part. And so, and so I, I remember and talk about a story out of the trench. I had the student, uh, Zach, and he was struggling in our program. We had a program, a, a magnet program where kids came from all over the um, city to come to the school. And, and basically my philosophy was, well, if he can't keep up, then he needs to be kicked out of the program, um, which is, now just sh- I'm just shamed to think about like that's the way I approach that but that's the way like it just was you know that's the way that we did things uh, not that that makes it right and so it became an educational thing for me where where and the, the the happy ending to Zach's story is that I learned how to start making things putting them in chunks like we were doing project-based learning and he had ADHD so imagine how difficult that is to do a long-term project when you can't stay focused for more than you know a little bit and so I learned how to chunk things to make them more accessible for Zach. And I would sit down and talk with Zach every day. How are things going? Where are you at? Whatever. And Zach was a really good learning experience for me because it was like, no, they can't. Special ed students are gifted. Student, special ed students actually can sometimes be more gifted than your typical kid. And so that, that was a real eye opener for me. And so... 2E is, is kind of, it's interesting because uh, it's kind of a new term, although mm-hmm. they've been there all along. And so it's not yeah. like 2E kids didn't exist when we were in school. They were there. We just didn't know how to identify them. And so what I'm learning, I'm doing a lot of work on this, actually, because it's something I don't know enough about. And I'm the kind of person that, like, if I don't know enough, I want to find out more. So and the one thing I'm, and Emily Kircher Morris, who uh, has written a few books on 2E, and she has a podcast called uh, Neurodiversity Podcast, is an excellent resource for such things. And she talks about like the most challenging thing is to first off to properly identify, because if you're gifted, your special ed may cause your scores to not be high enough to be identified as gifted. If you are special ed, your giftedness may prevent you from getting a diagnosis that you need that that's part of that special ed process. You might have dyslexia or dysgraphia, but you're smart enough that you can get by and you can fool people and to think, okay, this person doesn't have this issue or whatever. And so identification is a big one. Um, it's probably in, in, um, in different states identified differently and some have universal screening and some do not. Some use subs tests, some do not. So it's different wherever you're at, but we have to find ways to properly look for you know, the, the, these gifts in either special ed students or special ed problems, not problems, but special ed issues in gifted students. And so that's the first thing is just as teachers, we need to be more aware. Okay? Yeah. We, need to not, we need to not have to wait until a Zach comes along until we figure this out. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of training when it comes to working with both of these kids. Um, you know, the, the kids that has both ends of the spectrum. So I, I've seen, I've met a lot of teachers that are excellent at teaching gifted students. I've met a lot of teachers that are excellent at teaching special ed students, but I've not met that many who are good at both. Yeah. Um, the reason why is that you have to be addressing both of these. Um, and I, and the one thing I've learned through my research is that you start at a strength-based um, approach. In other words, when we look at special ed, we're like, the kid can't do this. So we need to accommodate that. That's a very uh, weak based approach. Instead, we should say the kid is really good at this. Let's take that and then help with this over here. Let's take their strengths and start to use their strengths to benefit themselves and to give them coping mechanisms, to give them strategies. Um, one thing that um, has come up a lot as I, do, as I do more and more research is that the biggest issue with, um, with twice exceptional kids is that they often lack executive functioning skills. And executive functioning skills are things like time management, uh, being able to pr- prioritize your task, 
um, being able to uh, chunk things into to parts and figuring out when, when you have to get to a certain deadline and get things done and move on to the next thing. And so it could be organization. Uh, like you open up their backpack and it's like, it's like, you know, there's Pictures stuff everywhere <laughs> yeah, stuff from three years ago. Oh, here's something I did three years ago and I forgot to turn in. <laughs> and the kid gets a bad grade because not because they didn't do the work, but because they couldn't find it in their book bag. Yeah. So, you know, we run into these students uh, all the time that have these, these not, not just 2E kids, but a lot of kids, uh, gifted, non-gifted, whatever, that have executive functioning issues. But 2E kids you, and typically almost always have executive functioning issues. So as teachers, one thing that we can do is we can try to explicitly teach these. Um, I heard something today that was really interesting when I was listening to her podcast, which is that we as teachers sometimes say well, that, and that's up to the, te- that's up to the parent to you know, teach those things, whatever. But the reality is, is if you're a parent who did poor and who in school, you struggled because you didn't have executive functioning skills, how are you gonna teach your kid that? So, you know, we need to, as teachers say, okay, in general, students all, like I, I was really big on teaching kids how to take notes. Um, and so I started teaching third graders how to take proper notes because I felt it organized their thoughts. It gave them something to refer to lately or uh, um, that they could refer to, to remember. But it also is that like most things was attached to an experience that I had, which is that when I was in school, teachers would say, take notes and they wouldn't teach us how. So I just wouldn't take notes. I would just sit there and listen. I could, I could, I was bright enough that I could get by with what I heard and then take the test later and pass it, whatnot. But I'll never forget my first day in college. So I get to college and I'm in this giant lecture hall, about 350 students probably crammed into this thing. Uh, looking down on this po- this uh, podium in the front, and there's my there's my biology professor, and he has you know an overhead projector in front of him. So we didn't have LCD or uh, you know screens back yeah. then, and he starts talking, and everyone in the room, uh, 349 people in the room, pull out their notebooks and yeah. start taking notes, and I'm sitting there going. <laughs> What is everyone doing? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I just was like, and so, and so, and to make a, a long story short, I was on academic probation my first semester. Uh, and so, but it was a real eye opener for me. I, I learned, I have to learn how to take notes if I'm going to survive yeah. in a particular situation. But the, the problem becomes is that I was able to discern that for myself. Some kids aren't. So they get to that point. They have the executive function uh, skill that they don't know. And so they just like, like my nephew, he wasn't good at, at taking, he just gave up. He just stopped yeah. going to school. And so, uh, you know, he didn't finish college as a result of his executive functioning um, deficiencies. And so I think it's really infor- important that we recognize these students. We recognize what their strengths are. We recognize what they need help with. And then we provide the, the, the know-how, how to develop these executive functioning skills that's going to make them um, more confident and more capable. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. As students. Yeah, and that executive functioning is a huge piece of it. And it, like you said, it doesn't matter if a child's in, in kindergarten, first grade, or in college. Um, you know, it's really, um, it's as a teacher, not expecting that they know it by now, right? It's really um, kind of laying down, like, what are the expectations in terms of organization? And, and not just saying that the beginning of the year, right? I think that's something that needs to be revisited at least quarterly. Um, you know, and also as it, when students are working, just walk around and make sure kids have the chance to organize their binder. That's something I'm seeing at the middle school, just like the sea of papers, like you said, right? And, um, you know, when they have to turn in something, they can't find it because it's crumpled down in the backpack. Um, but like, yeah, like you said, that could be. And one thing that we do, I see all the time, and I, I was guilty of this too as yeah. a teacher, where we say, study for the test. Yeah, that's all we tell them. We don't show them how to study. We yeah. don't. So, so kids, kids who are, you know, kids are, 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 you know, innovative. They just create their own methods for doing that. And yeah. so, but a lot of times what happens is they, they end up cramming. So they learn, they try to fit everything that they need to learn within like the day before studying. I had I have a friend who um, he's, he's a doctor. I play poker with him. And he was telling me when he was in school, he actually learned how to study, which is that 
they would learn something. And then that night he would go home and he would review what he had learned and he would figure out how that was going to be helpful for him. And he would take uh, ancillary notes or additional notes to what, what he learned. And then he would remember it so much better when he, yeah. the next time he had to access that. And so he actually learned how to study. But a lot of times we just expect students to oh, just, just figure it out yourself. And we need to be equipping these kids uh, with the, the methods for doing this uh, because because we can't, again, like you said, we can't assume that they know things. If you have juniors in high school, I had juniors in high school, I assume they knew how to do internet research. They've been in school for how long they've been dealing with the internet, whatever. And some were very, they would be like, they would look at the first two articles and say, I can't find what I'm looking for. I'm like, there are like, a, first off, there's like 100,000 articles that it, it showed you. Like you didn't I, didn't, I don't expect you to go through all of them, but I do expect you yeah. to go through more than two of them. And so like, teaching kids how to find reliable sources and unreliable sources and how to do a proper search and how do you phrase your search and so on and so forth. What sites should you, you know, are reliable, which ones should you avoid? So, you know, I think it's really important that we, we equip students to be able to be learners. And that's one, and I think executive function skills is a, a number one um, way to do that. So. Yeah. So back on talking about parents of gifted students, a lot of them, a lot of the students are perfectionists. My twelve-year-old one, case in point, right? <laughs> so, how can the parents and teachers of some of these students um, help them at least not be quite a perfectionist, or not like be like all or nothing thinking, right? If I don't finish this, or if I don't like do this perfectly, and the teachers, because my daughter is always like, "Oh, the teacher is just going to give me an F," or you know, it's not really all or nothing thinking. So, what are what are some tips? I know you have some SEL resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, and you said something really important there that you just said. Actually, you said they're worried about the F. Yeah, and unfortunately. In our school, in our school systems, we have set up this having to be perfect yeah. and worrying if we're not, that it will affect our grade. Yeah. So if you and, and so there are there are some teachers like if you make a, a mistake, then you're going to get less than what you you wanted. And, and so we have got to make classrooms a place where it's OK to make mistakes. And I'm not I'm not saying like failing because they don't do the work. But if a kid goes big or tries something that is, is maybe a it's going to be challenging and they may not get there, we need to, to acknowledge that and reward that rather than say, you got to see because you didn't get your work in on time, you know, or whatever. You know, like I think as a school system, we set up this perfectionism a lot um, because of our focus on grades. If it were up to me, if I had a magic wand and I could change, change one thing about school, I would get rid of gr letter grades, just get rid of them all together. Um, I've been teaching the last three years online to students overseas. We don't have letter grades and it works wonderfully. Like kids just get feedback and they get things they can improve and things that, you know, that they are doing really well. And it, it doesn't come down to a grade that they're, tr they're trying to get to. Um, and this goes back, back to that motivation factor. A lot of the ways that we motivate kids in school is through extrinsic motivation, the grade or a reward or this or that, rather than the intrinsic motivator, which, which we should be focusing on, which is that, you know, by learning this, that you, you're, you know something now and you can do something with that. You know, it's, it's for learning for the sake of learning. And so a lot of times we don't do that, but we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside because I don't have a magic wand. And we'll talk about, you know, what you can do with kids who are, have perfectionist tendencies. First off, I, I think sometimes these are caused by parents having yeah. too high expectations. So I'll give you an example. We always tell, I always tell my daughters, I don't care if you get A's. I just want to know that you tried, you made an effort in the class and whatever. And then she, they'll come home with a B and I'll be like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm contradicting the message that I'm sending here, which is like, or if they, they get a, you know, like a, a, a minus, I'll be like, Oh, what, what, why? Like, an A minus is a really good grade. It's I never got A minuses. I should be, I should be applauding their A minus. Instead, I'm going, why the minus? You know, yeah. sometimes we as parents look at a very deficit model of like, what did you do wrong to not get the perfect score? Mm -hmm. And so as parents, I think we need to be careful about that. You know, yeah. we should have we can certainly have high expectations of students or of our children, but they need to be realistic at the same time and not always 
you know, figuring out what they did wrong. My, my daughter, my older daughter was, um, I was her tennis coach for many years. And then she went on and she had another, she played high school tennis and had a different coach. And so I was used to giving her feedback, whatever. And I remember one time we were driving home from a match and I said, Oh, you did really, you did really, really well in your match. And she turned to me and she went, but, and I'm like, I did have a, but. like, I did have a, but I was going to say, but you could have done that. And so as parents, sometimes we need to get rid of the butts and we just need to accept that it, that what we're getting is what we're getting. Knowing that if, if, if we know that our kids are working hard. So my, my sophomore is not, a, is not a stellar student as my older daughter, but she still, she works really hard. Um, and so I always tell her like, and, and I'm, I'm trying to be better, you know, if you have multiple kids, like you make all the mistakes with the first one, and then you try to rectify those mistakes with the other one. And so I'm always like to her, I just want to, I don't want to see any missing work. As long as you're getting your work in and you're still getting a B or whatever it is that you're getting or a C or whatever, that's fine. You made the effort. I just, I don't want you to be held back because you didn't make an effort, not because you know of what you're. So I think as parents, we can do some things there as teachers. We need to also stop expecting perfection. Like I'll, I'll read a rubric that will say, you know, if a kid gives a presentation, they get a four if they don't make any mistakes. So that kid has no room for error. And, and yet, as I'm sitting here having this, this podcast with you, I've made like a dozen mistakes already in the way I'm speaking. And so, you know, if I gave myself a great, you know, what I'm mean, taking off every time you make a mistake. No, because again, that's a very deficit model and that wears on kids. Um, so I, I, my older daughter, who I, I would, I, I would say is a perfectionist. I just try to, I just try to now when I have conversations with her, I try to make sure that I am not focusing on the grade that I'm like, that sounds good. And, and like, it's okay that you don't get this, or it's okay that, um, that it wasn't perfect because I try to tell my, my students all the time, there's no such thing as perfection. It does yeah. not exist. You, you, and so, and I'm constantly telling students this. Um, and so I'm trying to create a culture in my classroom where it's okay. Cause I still do teach. And when I was in the classroom, um, I want to make a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. The kids can make mistakes and that there's never going to be perfect. So don't even try for it because you're not, you're never going to get there because it doesn't exist. Um, and so that's a culture that I try to create in that classroom. And, and as teachers, we can do that by giving kids a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to things. So rather than, and, and the perfect example is a, is a multiple choice test. So if you give a multiple choice test and a kid misses it, you have no choice but to take off points. And so that kid is like, I didn't get a perfect because I missed this one, this one, this, this one. I, I like, I started using a lot of performance-based assessment in my classroom. And a kid can do a, can, you know, give a presentation or create something or, you know, have a, um, you know, a product that they create and it's not perfect but they still get the A because they, they did all the things that, that they were required to do and it went a little bit above and beyond that. Sure, there's a couple of things here or there that could have been better, but it still doesn't prevent them from getting their A. Um, I mean, I, I always, one of the things that I struggle with as a gifted coordinator is that I have to oftentimes oversee the spelling bee contest. And you have these kids up here, they work very, very hard, they get try, and then they get a word and they miss one letter. And, we hang the, hit the bell, ding. That thing yep. is like a dagger in my heart. Every time I hear that and I see the look on the kid's face and I see like, you made a mistake, you are eliminated because you made one mistake. And so I, if I, 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 I had, you know, we have spelling bees they are very traditional. We've done them for years, but like, if I had my wherewithal, I would get rid of them and have yeah. competitions like destination imagination or invention convention where you can make mistakes. And that's part of the process actually is making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Um, and so I, I think as teachers, we can certainly set up our work in our classroom, our assessments, our activities, whatever, to where as kids can make mistakes and it's okay. It's okay to take a risk and that's okay. You know, again, we, we encourage kids to take risks, but then when they take a risk, we take off <laughs> if they yeah. miss something. So it, it sets a, it sets a bad precedent. And so I, I, as teachers, there are certain things we can't control everything that is for certain, but there are certain things that we can control. And so setting up a, a classroom that where it's okay to make mistakes and that to take risks and it doesn't have to be perfect will help that student who is a perfectionist to, to relax a little bit. 
And so that that would be my uh, my advice to someone to if working with uh, perfectionist students. Yeah, I really like that piece about the multiple choice test, right? It's uh, it's it's not about necessarily the points; it's about how they show their learning, right? So trying to get out of threat of just doing multiple choice, or you know, I used to be a teacher who would take off um, top French and would take off for every single grammar spelling mistake, but then I realized. It's, it's how are, you able, uh, how are you able to speak the language more than necessarily each grammar. And I still do tutor students online and they, you know, I'm supporting them with the work that they have from another teacher. And some of those uh, students are like, well, this teacher takes off every single spelling mistake, every single accent mark. And, you know, I'm, I'll just have to help work with them and, you know, hope they get the spelling right. But it's like, that's when you're actually using the language. It's not like, <laughs> did, you, did you put that ending on? You and I are both very fluent in English, and yet, you know, we'll look back on this and we'll say, I said this wrong, whatever. We're not going to be perfect because, again, there's no such thing as perfect. But you remind me of like a a perfect example is math. Okay, math has one correct answer. And if you don't get that correct answer, then you get marked off for that. Mm -hmm. I I ran across the math teacher that she she taught mathematics or she she graded mathematical thinking, not the answer. So if the kid got the answer wrong, but still showed the correct mathematical thinking in their work, she gave them credit for that. Um, and yet most math classes are, you miss it, that's wrong, yeah. we're taking off, whatever. Uh, so I, I think that that's just, it's just a mindset shift for teachers is that, again, going back to this whole theme of, um, of strength model versus weakness models, we should be looking at our students' strengths and what they're doing well yeah. and giving them credit for that rather than taking off because of, I mean, like I always say, like basically how some teachers approach us is we start with an A and then every mistake we shave off a little bit more until we get down to the grade that we get. What if instead we built that up and we had students like start here and then they build up to what they're going to do. And so rather than just take than, than taking away a little here, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, that's going to cause uh, anxiety in students and it's going to cause kids to want to be perfectionist because that's the culture that we've set. Exactly, exactly. Um, I wanted to touch base with you a little bit on uh, your Learn Like a Pirate Twitter chat. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're one of the hosts, and uh, this runs the first Monday of every month. Tell me a little bit about what time people can tune in and some of the topics uh, that are coming up in the next few weeks. Sure, no problem. So I want to make sure that I'm clear, like, I am, I'm a guest host for like, Paul Solars, who wrote the incredible book, Learn Like a Pirate which is all about project-based learning um, is that the guy who wrote this book years ago and he hosts, he, he sponsors this chat. He created a um, professional learning community with thousands of, of teachers throughout the years. And um, I would, but I was, I remember I was reading Paul's book and I was reading and I'm like, did I write this book? And I forgot that I wrote this book. Cause like, he was like doing the exact same things that I was doing. Uh-huh. In the class. And I would, and I would read a part and I'd be like, is this kid guy in my mind? So I reached out to Paul and I'm like, Oh, I think we're like long lost brothers. Cause yeah. I think we're on it. And, and he, and he, you know, it's Paul's a great guy. And he was like, he's read some of my stuff. He's like, yeah, I felt the same way. You know, we're kind of on the same in, in the same regard. And so when Paul needed host, I was like, Oh yeah, I would definitely love to, because learning is all about community and being a teacher is all about community. We, the, the problem with teaching in my opinion is that, when the bell rings, we shut our door and we're the only one in the classroom with the kids and there's no collaboration going on. There's no feedback. There's no conversation. Sure. You may talk with teachers later on if you're on a teaching team or you may have a colleague that you trust, but in a, in a field that's supposed to be very collaborative, it's very individualized. Yeah. And so, uh, so to, to, I'm probably going on too long about this, but to answer the question, the learn like a pirate is, uh, uh, every Monday at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. And what happens is uh, whoever's hosting that week asks has a topic, and then they ask eight questions throughout the night. Every seven minutes, okay. there's a question. Okay. And then, the, but here's the great part about it is like, I love to host it because I don't know what answers are going to come in. I don't know what they're going to be. But what I love is the conversation that comes as a result of those answers. I'm not, those answers are not designed to have a correct answer or a not correct answer. There's just their answer. Yeah. So if I say, if I'm doing a, like I did one last week on, you know, why teachers shouldn't be afraid of group work. 
Um, and some teachers were afraid of it and some weren't and some saw the value in it and some thought, thought it was just a big headache. And there's, that's, none of those are wrong or none of those are right. They're just what they experience. And so what's nice about this Twitter chat is then is not the answering of the questions, it's the conversation that comes as a result of the answers yeah. of the questions. Yeah. And so I really enjoy that back and forth. I really enjoy um, having that conversation and dialogue because here's the thing that I learned really quick in education. I think it's really important for every teacher to learn is that if you think you have everything figured out, you need to get out of teaching because we don't have everything figured out. We will never have everything figured out. Yeah. And so we're constantly having to challenge ourselves. Um, the, the, the two E is a perfect example of this. I realized and having conversations with fellow colleagues that I didn't know a whole lot about two E. So I'm like, yeah. I need to learn this. I need, I need to get better at this. And so as teach, I, I think the best teachers are the ones that are lifelong learners. They want to learn, they want to improve, they want to get better. It's that teacher that's like, I had a teacher uh, give me another out of the trenches story. The first year I taught, there was this teacher, his name is Mr. Shannon. And I shared a room with him because I was a new teacher and I had to share rooms because we didn't have enough room for me to have my own room. And in Mr. Shannon's room, like uh, he was very particular about things. And so when, when we got new textbooks, he's like, no, 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 I'm not changing my textbooks because then it messes with all my lessons. And Mr. Shannon was the kind of teacher that laminated his lesson plan. Where <laughs> he did the exact, if you walked in seven years apart on this particular day, he was still doing the exact same thing that he did before. You know, whether it worked or not, the best teachers that I have experienced as, as a student and as working with fellow teachers is that you're constantly reflecting and saying, this went this way, but I could make it better. I could do this to make it better. This worked this time, but it may not work next time. Because that's another thing about teaching is that just because it works with one group of students or with one student doesn't mean it's going to work with another group of students. And so, yeah. you know, we constantly have to be um, changing. People always like, I'm always amazed in, in education when I'm working with educators, whatever, and something has to be changed at the last minute. And they always apologize. I'm like, dude, that's my life. That's, that's my life as a teacher is that we have to be on the move and thinking on our feet all the time and adapting. If we're not doing that, then we're not teaching. And so with, I, I went to a fellow colleague when I, about Mr. Shannon, I was like, oh, you know, he does. And he said to me these words, which stuck with me is the very first year I taught. And he said, you can either teach for 30 years or you can teach one time, one year, 30 times. Yeah. And for me, it was very appealing to teach for 30 years. It was not appealing for me to do the exact same thing for 30 years in a row. That would be like torture for me. And so that's why every year I'm constantly challenging myself to try something else. When uh, I, and I'm out of the classroom now in my in the district I'm at, but I, I don't want to be the type of person that says, hey, I'm out in the classroom, but you should try these things. Mm -hmm. I, am, I am never going to give a teacher advice unless I've tried it myself. So to give an example, I wrote a book on uh, project based learning for K through two students. I've never taught kindergarten. Yeah. How can I offer advice to someone who teaches kindergarten if I've never taught? So I created these lessons, these projects, whatever. And then I asked a kindergarten teacher, do you mind if I come in and teach these lessons? I want to make sure they work. I want to yeah. make sure that I know what I'm doing. And to give you an example of that, one of the projects I did was making a paper airplane. So kids are going to make three different paper airplanes and they were going to hypothesize which one would go the furthest. And so to me, it was like, oh, okay. Kids making paper airplanes. Who wouldn't love that? So I go <laughs> to kindergarten class and I say to the kids, okay, take that piece of paper and fold it in half. I'm thinking this is going to take a minute. At the most, it took 20 minutes to get all <laughs> of those pieces of paper folded correctly. Like some kids, you know, yeah. were folding it hamburger or other than hot dog style. Some were, you know, just didn't have it as an even fold. Some were, you know, like didn't even know how to approach it. And so like, I'm like, this, this is good. This is good for me to, to see. To know. <laughs> I'm a huge believer. And there's a humongous chasm between theory and practice. Yeah. So in theory, this should work, but in practice, I know different. Yeah. And so, and so I, I'm, I, I always struggle with um, uh, some, some people that are university people that are like, here's the theory of teaching you should consider. And it's like, have you been in a classroom lately? <laughs> have, you, have, you tried, have you tried these things? Because what you just suggested sounds great, 
I'm not so certain it's going to work. And I'm not saying to be like negative when someone has an idea that you should, you know, just poo poo that idea. But what I am saying is that sometimes you get people that are out of touch with the practice part of it and they have these theories and that they don't line up. And so I'm always a big, like, let's, let's take this theory and see if we can't turn into practice. If we can't turn into practice, then the theory doesn't hold any weight, but I'm going to make sure that I'm practicing what, what the theory is. And so that's a a big, uh, that's something that's very looms large in my life is that I need to practice as much as possible. So, so when I, when COVID hit and people went online, a lot of my teachers were doing, you know, online learning and, but I'd never experienced that. I wasn't in the classroom anymore. So I started teaching kids in China online overseas so that I could experience what it's like to do that. So I can feel what it's like to be them, to sympathize and empathize and to, to give them advice if things worked for me or the things that didn't work for me. And, and so I want to make sure that I'm practicing what I'm preaching, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such good advice because, um, like you say, like you can read these books written by researchers, things like that, but unless they're really living it, like you said, it's it, it's great that you went into that uh, the K to two teachers classroom and you were really able to see kind of, okay, well, this is going to take a little bit longer. Maybe I thought I should suggest in the book, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. The, the level of kids. Yes. Um, and that Twitter chat, what is the hashtag for that? It is um, hashtag uh, learn LAP. Okay. So, and again, there's wrong. It's every Monday. Occasionally he'll take a Monday off. It's a holiday, but um, I certainly invite people to take part in the conversation because again, I like the back and forth of it. That's why I enjoy doing it. Um, You know, giving up a Monday evening every once a month uh, because of that conversation. Um, And I'm always impressed. There are some people that come every single week and they're the same people, but they're they're just there to learn. Um, And so, you know, have to admire people that um, are willing to, to recognize that, there's still things to be learned in this profession. Well, we've had a great chat today on uh, your latest book, uh, Parenting, Gifted Students, um, Executive Functioning, just a lot of different things. Out of everything we've discussed on the podcast today, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember? So I, my, I didn't say this one, but it, hopefully it comes out on what I've talked about, is my philosophy of teaching is if you're doing what's best for kids, you're in good shape. So a lot of times as teachers, we question, should I try this with it? But I find that if you, you always put that mantra in your head, is this what is best for kids? And if the answer is yes, then you should do it. So and to give you an example, I, I was giving kids um, multiple choice tests when I first started as a teacher. And I was like, is this what's best for kids? Now I had to t- tell them to myself, like, now, if I give kids an essay, it means I'm grading 150 essays. And so I'm putting more work on myself, but isn't that what's best for kids? So isn't, isn't it better for them to get feedback or get the opportunity to explain themselves rather than trying to fit this answer into like one, one, one box? I mean, we, we are always telling kids to think outside the box and then all of our assessments are firmly in a box. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a disconnect there. And so I guess the one thing that I would say that hopefully comes out in this conversation is if you are always doing what's best for kids, then, then you're doing, then you're doing your job. Because I think a lot of times when there become issues with teachers that they're doing what's easiest for them, not what's best for kids. Um, And I don't want to call it lazy teaching, but I I feel sometimes like teachers are like, well, I'm not going to do that because it's going to do this to me. And I'm like, well, what is it going to do for the kid? What what is that, that? Because when you think about your own life as an adult, how many multiple choice tests do you take as an adult? Almost none, almost never. Everything is almost project-based learning or something that's hands-on or experiential learning. And yet we're not setting up classrooms like life's going to be. We need to start doing a better job of doing that. We need to make sure that our classroom reflects what kids are going to see in their own life. Because that's another thing about motivation is the relevance. Why is it relevant? Why should they learn what they're learning? And if we don't have a good answer as to why they, they should, they're learning what they, they're learning, maybe we shouldn't be teaching it. I know we have content standards and we have to abide by those content standards, but we can certainly figure out ways to make those content standards relevant. So important to remember, like, you know, it's, it's not about doing what's easiest for you. It's about what's best for your kids. Where can people connect with you and find you online? 
So uh, I have a website, thegiftedguy.com. That has a lot of resources, free resources. And the great news is that it doesn't require you putting an email address or giving a blood sample or anything. There's just (laughs) where I put all my stuff that I, when I'm working with teachers across the state or across the country, I put resources in there so that teachers have those available. So all that stuff's free. I also, on that, um, I work in a district that has over 400 uh, teachers and I can't get to all of them. So I create videos. I call them Todd talks. They're okay. like 10, 20 minute videos, which are someone can just sit down during their lunch break and, and just watch it and get some advice on how to, to try something or to do something. Um, and so those are, I have over a hundred of those on that site and they're there, they're free. Again, nothing, nothing is of cost on the website. Um, I just do it to, to, to be part again of that community of collaboration. Um, and so that's one way, you know, I'm on Twitter at um, the underscore gifted underscore guy. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a very, that, that's very professionally uh, oriented tweet. You're not going to get any political stuff, any religious stuff, no compromising photos of me. It's just all like, these are things that we're doing in the classroom. These are the practice that we're doing in the classroom, you know, and this is as mm-hmm. how kids are being engaged as a result of this practice. And so, um, and, and so uh, yeah, I, I use that to communicate with people as well. So those are the two best places to, to find me. Great, great. Well, I hope people check those out. Um, you know, as you said, you provide a lot of free resources. Um, people can check out uh, the titles of all your books. And uh, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. So much from you. Hope listeners will get a lot. Of Thank you so much. Thank you, Dana. And I, I appreciate you offering something like this because this is, again, is that part of community. Like as teachers, I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to sit down and read books anymore because mm-hmm. just don't have time to do that. I love to put your, your podcast on and go for a walk or, you know, like today was a beautiful day and the school I work at is about a 20 minute walk away. So I put my earbuds in and I walk to school to work and I listen to uh, the neurodiversity podcast. And so I, I love opportunities like this because it, it's, it makes the learning for us as teachers more accessible. So thank you for providing that. Thank you. My book, Out of the Trenches, Stories of Resilient Educators, has now been published. Get it now at A-M-Z-N dot T-O slash 3B7-2-Z. Again, A-M-Z-N dot T-O slash 3B7-H-X-2-Z. Check out the show notes on danagoodier.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review wherever you download this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if this episode resonates, especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at Out of Trenches PC. Mm-hmm.